be speaking to us today on the strategies of small states, safeguarding autonomy, and influencing brain power. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction, Dylan, for inviting me here. And thank you all for coming out on this very rainy evening, um, especially to hear a talk about small states. I know we usually draw a crowd when we're talking about Russia, China, the US, the states that dominate uh, the news. But today I'm going to be talking to you about a slightly different group of actors who don't get quite as much attention. So I'm going to talk to you about the strategies of small states, safeguarding autonomy, and influencing great powers. Okay, so what I'm going to talk about today, uh, to give you a quick overview, I'm going to uh, define what I mean by small states. I'm going to talk to you a bit about their characteristics, focusing today on public administra uh, administration and economic systems, because I believe these um, shape a lot of foreign policy behavior. I'll talk about vulnerability and resilience. And then once we've established kind of the nature of the small state, I'll talk a bit about the strategies that they then nurture. So we'll talk about strategies for autonomy, and I've put down hedging, seeking shelter and neutrality, and strategies for influence. So I'll talk about binding, smart states, and status seeking. And if this is a lot of words that all sound very foreign to you and things you haven't come across, by the end of this talk, hopefully you'll all be experts and these will be part of your vocabulary. And I'll try and close with some case studies um, and overall, my goal is to make the case that a small state doesn't have to mean a weak state. So we'll see if I've convinced you by the end of this talk. So I thought I'd start by telling you a bit of a story. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with these Aesop's fables that we read when we're children. Not quite the books I think you'll find in the Bodleian over here, but um, they're stories that give us a lesson. So once upon a time, there was this frog. And he had a problem because he was trying to get away from this terrifying snake. And I think you'd probably want to get away from him too. So he goes to the owl, who's a symbol of wisdom in the animal kingdom, and he says, please help me get away from the snake. And the owl says, no problem. Getting away from the snake is easy. You just need to learn to fly. Which of course leaves the frog with a problem because he can't possibly learn to fly. And the reason I'm telling you this story is to make the point that there is no global applicability of strategic choice. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to strategy. And yet, in our discipline, we often take knowledge and lessons from great powers, and we assume that because these are the states we're studying, that many of the strategies will be the same, and state is a state, and it will act in the same way. And that is not the case. So I'm going to tell you why it's not the case for small states. And why does it matter? Why have you come out here today to listen to something about small states? Well, first of all, small states are located in every region of the world. They also comprise the majority membership of the UN. In fact, 105 countries make up the forum of small states at the United Nations, a loose grouping at the UN. So actually, the majority of states in the world are small states. And if we're not studying them, are we really studying international relations? And finally... Um, I want to make the case from the very beginning that even though small states are not a homogenous group, they're not all exactly the same um, by any means, and that was the point I tried to get at with my example before, they are characterized by many common factors which affect their behavior, and those are the ones that I'm going to talk to you about. So there are two dimensions when we talk about small states. The first one is what are the characteristics of a small state? Again, what is their nature? And the second is then, how do we study the security of small states? What strategies can they nurture? So I'll start with telling you the characteristics. The first question you're asking is, well, what do we mean when we say small state? What are we talking about? 
Well, traditionally, size was measured by geographic area, population, and economy of armed forces. And essentially, the reason why is because the states with the most territory and the biggest population had the most land in agrarian societies to produce food and the most people to recruit into their armies. So the more land and people you had, the more uh, productive your uh, land was and your people were. So if you had less of that, you were considered small. But over time, we've seen uh, that there's a lack of agreement about, well, but what constitutes that small bit? In 1982, the academic Jalen said, well, it's states with a population of 5 million. That's a small state. And then in 1998, Armstrong comes along and says, it's 3 million, 3 million or less. That's a small state. And today, the Commonwealth Secretariat, which is the most commonly cited definition, says 1.5 million. So what is happening here? Why is the number going down? Well, there are a few uh, obvious reasons. We have more states in the international system because of processes of decolonization, the breakup of the USSR. There are more states, so comparatively, there are more uh, to compare. And so the number is changing. But why does this matter? Well, it shows that population alone is insufficient if you just look at this number. So if you came today for me to give you one holy grail answer of this number is a small state, that's not what I'm here to do. You can go to the academic literature, you can find these definitions, but what matters isn't a specific number, it is that it's all relative, right? You know that um, I'm not very tall because I'm stood here in front of you. But if I was on my computer, I spent all of our online teaching trying to convince everyone I was six foot five because they had nobody standing next to me to compare it to. So what matters isn't the number. It's the fact that as your relative share of population and territory and these other things that I mentioned get smaller, certain characteristics become more pronounced. And so this is what Balakino calls the small scale syndrome. There are certain characteristics in the society that become more pronounced and which we say this is what makes it a small state, the ones that conform to these kinds of behavior. So I'll talk to you about what some of these types of behavior are. And I'm going to look at the public administration and the economic system just to pick two because, you know, this is I'm not going to talk to you for a whole week. So. Let's talk about public administration. And the, the article that I recommend you look at if you're interested in this topic is by Ran Malev and Sarapu, two, um, two Estonian academics. And they looked at the public administration systems in small states and compared the situation in what we would consider large states and small states. So, and they came up with four paradoxes. And the first paradox is that of small versus large government. We assume that a state is a state and should fulfill all of the same functions, right? But in reality, small states often have limited resources and small scales, so the market for some services might be missing. For example, if you want to study to be a vet in Malta, you can't do that. The course isn't offered. You have to go abroad to study, and that brings about problems of brain drain, for instance, or other issues. So it really, even though every state has to prioritize and be selective, there is additional pressure on small states to do that. The second is the paradox of specialist versus generalist administration. We assume that addressing complex policy problems requires specialization, right? You have specialists who do things. 
But the reality is that in small organizations, you often have this lack of uh, specialist expertise that forces you to be generalist administrators. You might have one person doing a job in Finland where you have an entire department or team doing something here in the United Kingdom, right? So that also has an effect. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It could be if you lose that one person and then suddenly you've lost the knowledge they bring with it. But sometimes it makes things much more efficient and quick to get things done, like in a crisis situation. Third is formal versus informal governance, that we assume transparency, predictability, neutrality, all of these things require formalization, formal processes and ways of doing things. But the reality is that often in small states, you have high personalism, close social relationships and multifunctionality, which contribute to informal governance. It's a lot of, oh, I know this person, I'll just ask them for you and I'll, I'll check that thing for you. And you can be walking down the streets of Valletta, the capital city of Malta, and walk past ministers or walk past the prime minister. And you're never going to be walking down the mall in the United States and walk past Biden, right? It's just not going to happen. So that access and way of mode of doing things can be quite different. And finally, the presumption of centralized versus decentralized governing, where in a democracy, we assume we should have decentralization like the German system. But the reality is because you lack economies of scale and limited resources, there's often a pressure towards centralization of processes. And again, it's because of also having fewer people um, involved doing things. Now, again, I'm not saying these are necessarily bad things. They all come with their pros and cons. It's just a case of understanding the situation. So, for example, um, with centralized governance, I'll give you an example from the COVID-19 crisis. We, it might be seen as a vulnerability that there are fewer human resources to respond to a problem, right? But in actuality, you can actually build resilience because you've got those individuals who have those multifunctional generalist roles, means that in the outbreak of COVID-19, in many small administrations, they could have this helicopter view over what was actually happening, as opposed to in many large states where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, right? So it was easier to be flexible and to respond because of those special characteristics of the way small states are. So in COVID, it was easier for governments to identify shortcomings in their jurisdiction. It's easier to survey over the population. And innovation is kind of easier to implement more quickly because you don't have to jump through all of these hoops and red tape. So there can be advantages. And I don't want to come away from this thinking, you know, everything that characterizes a small state is necessarily a bad thing. I'll give you another example from COVID-19 where it comes to this idea of centralization um, bringing flexibility. Much of the success reaped by the Faroe Islands in the early fight against COVID-19 was because they quickly adapted a lab for salmon infection testing to test for COVID-19. And they did that very quickly, which allowed them to adapt and respond. And in Finland, um, they have a system where they have a monthly security committee meeting and they bring together the chief of the border guard, the head of intelligence, chief of police, who all come together to discuss issues of Finnish uh, security so that when a crisis happens, everybody already knows each other and they're already discussing issues of resilience um, in an ongoing fashion. And they also take what's called a comprehensive security approach, which means the government works very closely with NGOs, business, uh, public organizations, so that it's not 
so that they work together in confronting the crisis. And that part of that is that accessibility and being slightly closer because you don't have all those layers that separate you. Okay. So let's just shift quickly to the economic dimension. And typically in economics, we think of it as being measured by GDP. And falsely, and I'll say that immediately in case you're writing this down and you write down what I'm saying, in the past, they, one would assume that, you know, if I have a GDP of one and somebody else has a GDP of two, we would think that's twice as strong. But that's not the case. So, for example, in the 1980s, Malta had a GDP that was 20 times that of India. So should we assume that it's 20 times stronger? No, because the Maltese economy is disproportionately exposed to externally originating shocks that larger countries have much more of a buffer against. And you could see this when the Libya crisis broke out and tourism uh, was affected towards Malta, even though it's not because of its proximity. To Libya. So a shock that had absolutely nothing to do with the island impacted on its economy. So there's much more exposure to these kinds of shocks. And so small states economically are characterized by a higher reliance on exports because of the limited size of their market and also to meet import expenditure and a higher reliance on imports because of limited natural resource endowments and limited diversification possibilities. So what does this all mean? Economic smallness is associated with a relatively high reliance on international trade. A small economy has to be open. You have to trade. You cannot produce everything you need yourself. Um, you have to be trading with others. Now, who to trade with, then that is a policy choice. So the nature is having to be open to trade. The nurture is then who you trade with, what you trade, things like that. And so if we think about uh, the situation of small states as having certain vulnerabilities, for instance, exposure to external shocks, um, you can also think, you know, these are the things that are, like I said, the nature. There's nothing we can do. This is a fact of life. But it doesn't mean we're doomed. It's then up to policymakers to build resilience, which means coping ability, how you bounce back from those shocks. And that comes with what kinds of macroeconomic policies you're putting in place, what kind of market policies what kind of uh, policy making you choose to build resilience. So remember this, the vulnerabilities and resilience, if you take something away from that section. And you can see that in, again, I'll sum up COVID-19 because that's something I've been working on quite a lot at the moment. Some of the vulnerabilities are that you have uh, the potential for easier transmission of the virus in states that are small and especially densely populated. You have higher medicine costs per capita because it costs more to create things for fewer people and fewer resources to contend with the problem. You know, you can't like in the UK, they designated one hospital for COVID patients, one hospital for everyone else. You can't do that if you have only one hospital. Right. If you're a place like Vanuatu that only had one ventilator, what do you do in these kinds of situations? But we also saw that they could build resilience, right? Having those much more flexible and adaptable and agile modes of doing things, economic agility to change, um, to change rapidly the way you were producing things or what you were selling. Um, and also the idea of social capital, which is the idea that in small states, often that because of these closer relationships, even if you don't 
get along and it's a very polarized society in times of crisis the people are much more willing to band together and this is characterized by the just in the Ardern of New Zealand calling New Zealand a team of five million in confronting the virus which is very different to the situation we had here in the UK um, in regard to our politicians okay so if you take anything away from the things that I've talked about so far in the talk it's that small states they will need alliances because they can't do everything by themselves they'll need to trade because their economy has to be open and um, which i will come to talk about a bit more some of the ways to do this is through international organizations and for the real diehard ir theorists in the room you can remember it as this is what the realists will really care about that's what the liberals will really care about and this is what the constructivists will really care about but they all matter for studies of small states Okay, and what do they use these three things for? Well, Goschel, who was a, a scholar, said in 1998 that the dilemma of states is to do two things. They want to protect their autonomy and they want to project their influence. Just checking how long I've been talking for. So, I did not start my timer, so you'll have to tell me when I <laughs> run out of time. Okay, so what do they... So, have, you've understood now, I think, a bit about what characterizes the small state. And so how are they going to protect their autonomy and project influence? Let's start with protecting their autonomy, their independence, their existence, right, as sovereign actors in the international system, which historically we know, and we know from the news this week, not everybody wants to leave them, just, you know, live their lives and be in peace. So what do they do? Traditional IR scholarship says that states will either align with great powers or balance against potential threats. So either you join with the big guy who's threatening you, or you join with other people, well, states, against this threat, right? We know this as bandwagoning and balancing. But scholars of small states say, this is, whilst this is sometimes the case, this often explains medium to large state behavior and not the behavior of small states, who often prefer to do a number of other things. And those are the three things I'm going to talk to you about because you're less likely to have heard about them. So I'm going to talk about seeking shelter, developing hedging strategies, and staying neutral. Okay, so there is a famous uh, proverb in South Korea which says that, which talks about its position between China and Japan. And it says, a shrimp breaks its back in a fight among whales. And the idea is that small states don't really like to be caught in the middle of great power competition, don't like to be squeezed, and it's often said that this creates problems for them. But actually, for many small states, they found a way to navigate where conditions of geostrategic competition can actually be quite favorable. And this is because they don't necessarily want to choose a side and they prefer to go in the middle. And if you manage that effectively, it can actually be quite lucrative and quite a successful strategy for small states. To give you the example that all Southeast Asian states maintain economic and diplomatic ties with China, but it doesn't mean they're just ready to accept the power ascendancy of China in terms of political or military alignment. And they often balance that um, by having a relationship, for instance, with the United States. And Singapore is a perfect example of this. So pure balancing or bandwagoning is not necessarily economically wise. It might be risky. So they choose to take a middle position. And there are various, um, various types of strategic hedging, depending on how close you are to one side or the other. And if you want to read more about this, I'd suggest looking at Deddy Roy in 2005. And when done well, this can actually 
this can actually be great for the small state. And I put this cartoon from the height of the Cold War, where you can see uh, the US and the USSR dressed as Santa Claus coming to many of the small states that they were vying for influence over, bearing dams and steelworks and bridges and saying, we're going to build all these things for you if you will just support us. Right. And so if you were if you're savvy, it can be an opportunity to actually um, navigate the risk and come out with quite a lot of rewards. And there's a lot of examples of this from the Cold War. Today, it's a tightrope that's being walked by ASEAN in relation to the US and China. And um, many small states state explicitly that they don't want to choose a side. If you think of the 2019 Shangri-La Dialogue, which is Asia's premier defense summit, um, Lee Kuan Yew opened the summit by explicitly stating, uh, great powers ask us, are you my friend? Are you not my friend? Well, we want to be friends with everybody, and that's the way the world has to be. So as long as they are able to navigate this tightrope and have a relationship with the two, it, it can actually be quite favorable for small states, and they don't really want to bandwagon or balance, uh, despite what you might have read in your IR theory books. Now, sometimes um, small states might also um, need assistance, even in this, in this situation, which is not necessarily bilateral, but they want something a bit more certain. And so uh, Baldur Torhausen and other scholars have argued that what best describes the situation of small states that join, for instance, the European Union, is the idea of seeking shelter. Um, they become dependent on economic, economic, political, and societal shelter provided by larger states and regional and international organizations. So what does this mean? Political shelter is the idea that alliances deter conflict, and if you enter, in, and if you enter an organization, you'll cooperate more. Economic shelter means you have access to the markets, the trade in a more regular way. But there's also the idea of societal shelter. So remember that I said you can't study to be a vet in Malta, right? Sometimes there's knowledge and skills and ideas that are not indigenous to your country. So by, um, by joining these kinds of international organizations, you also gain access to training and knowledge as well from abroad. There are always costs to everything, so I put this there so that you, I try and add some balance. And it's that there, you know, joining organizations comes with conditions. You might have to cede some of your sovereignty uh, to reap the greater awards of rewards of pooling sovereignty. Something, for instance, the UK was not happy about doing, um, as we know. But there might be, you know, you have to decide how much of your sovereignty are you willing to give up, which is a big question for a small state when its own its very existence could perhaps be subsumed. The third one is staying neutral. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I will refer to it again in a moment. Um, but I had to put it in because, uh, because of what's happened this week. And so some small states, um, especially in um, important geostrategic locations, to avoid being drawn into conflict, prefer to declare neutrality, military neutrality. And so a good example of this is Finland, because it's got a very long border with an overbearing and dangerous neighbor, but it also, uh, that it doesn't want to antagonize, but on the other side also wants to maintain a good relationship with the West. So it's been neutral. And something that's so interesting about what's happening this week, besides of the obvious, is that in, country, in a country like Finland, last year they only had about 
19% support to join NATO. Now it's shot up this week to about 53%, and that goes up to 64% if Sweden were to join as well. So the current crisis is actually causing states with a long-standing history of neutrality to reconsider whether they would be better off as part of one of those security organizations and benefiting from strength in numbers than risking being caught out in the cold. We can talk about this more maybe in the Q&A section later. So those are some of the ways small states protect their autonomy. Let me talk to you now about how they project influence. And I'm going to talk about three strategies. Again, all good things come in threes. So the first one is institutional binding. And this one might be a bit familiar to anybody who's interested in international law. It's basically the idea that in international affairs, if you have rules and norms, they will formalize acceptable behavior that uh, will bind the behavior of great powers. Um, this has become prolific after the Second World War. There are many organizations, many rules and norms put into place. And these are seen as leveling the playing field in an asymmetric relationship. So instead of having this situation here, um, it looks a bit more <laughs> like the situation here, where you have to have more of a negotiation over what's acceptable behavior. And it's also good for small states because it lowers transaction costs. If you negotiate as a group in an organization, you need fewer resources to do that kind of thing. And so think of it like Gulliver's Travels, if anybody's read that. Uh, Gulliver goes on an adventure, falls asleep on an island, and wakes up to find he's been tied down by all these tiny little Lilliputian people. And so the idea here is that just like the Lilliputians tying down Gulliver, small states, if they can get what they want turned into international law or a norm, they can bind the behavior of great powers. And so as Michael Barnett argues, world orders are created and sustained not only by great power preferences, not just what great powers want to do, but by changing understanding of what constitutes a legitimate international order. Now, I know this won't necessarily be the case for everything, and great powers will always be able to not follow those rules, but even getting them to think twice or getting them to abide by certain rules that they wouldn't have otherwise is still a positive step in that direction for small states. And we've seen many small states put rules on the international agenda, like the Norwegian uh, treaty to ban landmines, or the law of the sea came from um, a proposal put forward by Malta in the 1950s. So you can see small states are able to shape the international order through law instead of might and deep pockets. Second one is the idea of smart states. So many of the problems we face today are not, well, unless you're Ukraine right now, I suppose, but are typically not the ones that require a military response, right? Things like um, organized crime, pollution, illegal immigration. Um, and so small states um, are able to offer a contribution to dealing with these things by being what we call smart states. Smart states means they turn their weaknesses into strengths. I'll give you an example. One role they can play is being an honest broker. This means a mediator, someone who brokers compromise. Small states are often seen as the best mediators because they're not considered to be as self-interested as great powers, especially neutral small states. And so Norway's Oslo Accords are a good example of this. The second one is the technical expert, where you influence through becoming the expert in something, having that knowledge and capability, and you influence through that instead of, again, military might. And so you can think of 
Estonia branding it Estonia and being the world leader in e-governance or the Welsh Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which is the only act in the world that turned the Brundtland definition on climate change and sustainability into law, which is crazy given we're in a climate emergency. So influencing through expertise. And the last one is uh, status seeker. And all of this is kind of tied together. And so some of this you'll be doing at the same time. So for the idea of status is that uh, of power and uh, through honor and reputation, right? Your status. And for a great power, that is often about being a state to be reckoned with. But for a small state, it's often about being noticed and being seen and being useful to others. And so to give you a little bit of... Uh, political philosophy, we all love a bit of Hobbes, he says in Leviathan that in the nature of man we have three causes of quarrel. First, competition, second, diffidence, and third, glory. The first makes me invade for gain, so think economic might. The second for safety, so think security. And the third for reputation, and it's a third one which he lists all three as being important uh, sources of power, but we barely talk, well, we do more now, but we don't talk enough about the power you can get from reputation. And so, I think I missed a slide there. Ooh, I don't know how to go backwards. Okay. And so, your reputation, yes. And so if I add on to Hobbes, Emil Durkheim, he says, as long as there will be states, there will be national pride and nothing can be more warranted. But states can have their pride not in being the greatest or the wealthiest, but in being the most just, the best organized, and possessing the best moral constitution. So we shouldn't assume all states are trying to do the same thing and be the same thing and be the world policemen. Some can achieve influence in other ways. And so I was going to ask if anybody recognizes any of the people in this picture. Who can you recognize? Uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> Well, yes, I hope everyone recognizes Obama. I mean, besides Obama, can anybody recognize anybody in there? Baltic. Yeah. Close. Nordic. Nordic. So this is from 2016, so they're not, you know, most of them aren't in these positions anymore, so you'll be forgiven. But basically, this was 2016. The Nordic leaders met with Obama, and he said this great quote, I really believe the world would be more secure and more prosperous if we just had more partners like our Nordic countries. There have been times that I've said, why don't we just put all these small countries in charge for a while and they could clean things up. Okay, it's a nice thing to say, but why does it, why does it matter? Well, he's saying this, he's not saying, look how rich these small countries are. They can give us money to buy weapons or look what big armies they have. They can come and help us fight. He's saying they have... Uh, they can clean things up, saying they have this reputation of being well-governed, um, effective societies, and that's what people, are, what is giving them uh, a reputation that other states respect and makes them willing to work with them. Of course, in this picture, you can also see kind of some of the downsides of small state diplomacy, right? Look at them all, all there meeting together. I'm pretty sure he would have had a one-on-one -on -one with Angela Merkel at that time, a one-on-one -on -one with Putin. So sometimes you do have to deal with the fact that you might not be, you have to, there is strength in numbers, but sometimes you're also part of a group. So then how do you distinguish yourself in that group is something small states also need to be mindful of. Okay, I'll give you some examples of case studies in case, you know, for the examples of the strategies that I've talked about. I'm not going to talk about all of them. I'll only talk about one, but I'll just read them out to give you some examples if you want to go away and think about this afterwards. 
For neutrality, many of the Cold War non-aligned states are also militarily neutral. Um, the idea of binding through institutions, right, using international law, Luxembourg is a great example. The honest broker, we mentioned Norway. The technical expert, I mentioned Estonia. Another one who binds through normal entrepreneurship. If you look at Denmark and the European Commission, it's incredible the number of uh, policies they've managed to get through. The honest broker, again, I'm going to talk about Malta, of course. Um, another one is the idea of being a smart state strategy, the hub, Singapore, you know, logistics in the region and its skills. You think of that country, strategic hedging, really all Southeast Asian small states, but also Gulf small states, really any region where alliance commitments are a bit uncertain and intentions can change. So you see, for example, um, Oman is a good example there as it hedges between it joined the GCC to kind of balance the Iranian threat, but also without alienating Saudi Arabia. So you have this kind of balancing. Maderos, a scholar, actually calls this kind of hedging, a geopolitical insurance strategy, which I quite like. And the last one of small state is being an issue champion. So you can think of many of the small islands in the Pacific, like the Marshall Islands has really had a lot of global leadership on the environment. Okay, so uh, I'm going to talk to you now quickly about this in practice, how the one small state does this. And it's the place right here in the middle, Malta. I don't know if you, the people at the back, they definitely can't see it all the way from down there. Um, so just quickly to the room, what's the first thing you notice if you if you look at Malta on this map? Any things that stand out immediately? Central. Central location, yeah. Central location where? Between two continents. Between two continents, brilliant. Anything else that stands out of this country? No, okay. I'll tell you some things about it, but everything you've said is basically right. Um, it's very small is the first thing that maybe we would have said. I, also, I always get to avoid the question of, you know, the question you know, that you get asked at the beginning, but is this country a small state? Well, Malta is small on every metric, so it actually is a good example to use to prove the points I want to say. It has a population of half a million, all crammed into 316 kilometers squared, which makes it both the 10th smallest country by area in the world, and the fifth most densely populated. So it's a lot of people in a very little space. Um, it's been independent <coughs> since 1964, and it conforms to many of the same issues that small states face that I outlined before. So small local markets, a need to trade, few natural resources, except for its human resources, and all of those characteristics that we talked about. So how does this small state protect its autonomy and project influence? Well, you looked at the map and you saw where Malta was located. So historically, you'll understand that every power with geopolitical ambitions wanted that rock, wanted to have access to North Africa and Europe, especially because many uh, states at the time were maritime nations, right? For trade, you need to stop to refuel and things like that. So as a result, Malta was colonized by essentially every great empire in the Mediterranean. And I wrote these down because there are so many of them that I can't remember them all in order. So we'll go through them quickly. Phoenicians, Carthaginians, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Arabs, the Normans, the Swabians, the Angevins and the Aragonese, the Knights of St. John, who stuck around for 268 years, the French, because Napoleon definitely wanted a piece of Malta, and then the British kicked out Napoleon, 
And so after then another 164 years under the British, Malta became independent in 1964. So that gives you a taste of uh, the colonial experience of the small island. So if you've been colonized for throughout much of your history, what do you want to do? You want to protect your autonomy. You want to make sure you're not going to be subsumed again. And so Malta protects its autonomy through a strategy of neutrality. It says in the constitution that it's a neutral state actively pursuing peace, security, and social progress among all nations by adhering to a policy of non-alignment and refusing to participate in military alliances. It's neutral. Okay, that's autonomy. Now, how does it project influence? So I put a picture of this here, which is called the Chippy of Melkart, and it's two uh, votive offerings to uh, to the god Melkart, which date back to the Phoenician period. And why are they special? Well, they're written on one side in the Phoenician language and one side in Greek. So think of it like the Rosetta Stone for the Phoenician language. And there's a copy of it at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Malta. And I think it makes a great metaphor for Malta's uh, strategy, which is one that I call the Mediterranean interlocutor. And I put the definition of interlocution, which means a speaking between. So like those chippies speak between two languages, Malta speaks between what this gentleman said, different continents, right? So Malta uh, aims to be this bridge between the continents. That's how it tries to project influence. And across both political parties, you constantly have these quotes from all leaders that say this. They say Malta is the voice of the Arab world in the EU. It has a vocation to serve as a bridge between Europe and the Mediterranean. We want to be considered by all stakeholders in the Israel-Palestinian conflict as a bridge builder. And then just uh, 2020 on the Libya crisis, Malta is in nobody's supporters club. We're not taking sides. We're talking to everyone. Okay, so how does this play out? Well, sometimes I think it's extremely successful. And one of them is, a good example is that when the Arab Spring flared across the region um, and Libya basically descended into crisis, Malta was catapulted into a leading position on the international state, stage due to its proximity. Malta is closer to Tripoli than Tripoli is to Benghazi, just to put that into perspective. And what, what was this country going to do? We are a militarily neutral country. Well, Malta became the staging hub for all humanitarian relief going to Libya. So water, food, evacuating the wounded, evacuating people went through Malta. And I think this was a really good example. And at the same time, this was um, at the time Prime Minister Lawrence Gonzi was at the EU advocating that we need to care about what's happening in the southern shores of the Mediterranean, and really speaking on behalf of the region. And I think this case study really shows that you can be neutral, but not neutralized in your foreign policy. You can still play a role. And because Malta was neutral, they accepted that humanitarian aid. And it played a very different role to the British or the French or others sending in planes and military, um, military, you know, having a military operation. But just as important is the humanitarian dimension. So a different role, but just as important. But to close, I can't just tell you the the good bits, I also have to tell you what happens when all of this goes wrong. And so in 2017, Malta had the presidency of the European Union. And throughout that time, it was plagued by accusations. The government was plagued by accusations of corruption, largely stemming from the pen of this person. Does anybody recognize her? Okay. Uh, this is Daphne Caruana Galizia, who was Malta's premier investigative journalist. 
just a few she was the one uh, her new her blog was the most read news site in Malta a few months after Malta's presidency of the EU she was assassinated by a car bomb these are the last words she ever wrote before she went out of her house and got into her car and was uh, blown up there are crooks everywhere you look now the situation is desperate this situ this uh, scenario caused an outcry across the EU there were questions about the rule of law in Malta the situation that led to a journalist being assassinated in a European Union member state um, and um, missions were led to Malta to try to find out what was going on. In particular, they critiqued something known as the Golden Passport Scheme, where if you, anybody in the room here has enough money, you can go and buy a Maltese passport. And it's back in the news being critiqued because it's being called a, basically a free passport for Russian oligarchs at the moment. And it was never in Labour Party's manifesto before they were elected. So this is been extremely critiqued. Why? Because it's not just a Maltese passport, you gain access to EU banks, financial sectors, it's a European Union passport, free movement across the EU. So it's been accused of helping money launderers um, and other corrupt initiatives. So we see that um, when Ana Gomez, a Portuguese MEP, led a mission to Malta to investigate um, investigate what was going on. She said the culture of impunity in Malta fosters corruption, organized crime, uh, and it was that culture that created the conditions for the murder of Daphne Caruana Galizia. And she said what's happening concerns us all, not just in Malta, because it you know, there are these effects across the whole EU. So the actions of in collective security organizations, the impact of one member state affects the others as well. So instead of thinking of Malta and thinking of these like the oldest Neolithic temples in the world and beautiful beaches and our capital city, UNESCO World Heritage Site, um, the headlines are saying something much darker over the last few years, right? And the headlines have been critiquing um, the country for causing all of these kinds of problems. And so if your strategy is being an interlocutor and an honest broker that wants to mediate between different regions, it's implicit in the name, honest. Well, Malta hasn't been seen as being honest, so it risks jeopardizing its ability to trade with others, which we said is fundamental for small states. We said it affects its ability to do a lot of things, um, which can be, you know, extremely problematic. So instead of uh, Foreign Minister Bartolo saying, we're in nobody's supporters club, Malta risks finding herself with no supporters. And just to bring it really up to date, though, there is some hope um, about a month ago. And I'm, this is to, to make the case that the loss of reputation, there are some ways you can pull back it might, for a small state. And that is a few weeks ago, uh, the European Union elected a new president of the European Parliament. It's this woman, Roberta Metzola, who's Malta's um, MEP. This is the highest position a Maltese, MEP, a Maltese person has ever held in the world. Um, and she was part of the group, the, the EPP group at the EU that had led a mission to Malta to find out what was going on with the corruption situation. And um, particularly because members of the prime minister's cabinet were being accused of being involved and the case is still ongoing. Um, and this picture went viral where she's refusing to shake the hand of the prime minister at the time. So it could, so her election was very much about being you know, being a clean, of cleaning up rule of law, being someone that really stands up for the things that we said uh, give small states a reputation. So it might not all be gone. And so 
My last slide is just to recap what I've talked about today. Um, small states are characterized by, if you take anything away from this talk, I've said small states are characterized by distinct vulnerabilities, but that's the nature. But despite that, good policymaking can build resilience, that alliances, trade, and international institutions will all be important, that they have several ways to protect their autonomy that are not just bandwagoning or balancing, and some examples I gave you are hedging, neutrality, and seeking shelter, that they have many ways also of projecting influence that doesn't have to be might or deep pockets, and I talked about binding, smart state strategies, and seeking status, and I've talked about overall small states being flexible and agile and responding to opportunity, but also they face risk. It takes longer to build a reputation than it does to tarnish it. And especially if much of your power currency is on your reputation, you really have to think through the trade-offs you're making in your policy making. So if anybody's now listened to absolutely nothing, I spent the entire time worrying about this poor frog at the beginning that's trying to get away from the snake, you know, don't worry because the frog doesn't need to soar like the ego. What he's cultivated is this amazing capacity to jump to safety. And so in just in the same way, we find that small states don't have to be uh, weak states, they can act, I hope, I've argued, as small powers. And for those, again, thinking about that shrimp breaking its back, I'll close with a quote from Lee Kuan Yew, who says that in a world where the big fish eat the small fish and the small fish eat the shrimp, Singapore will become a poisonous shrimp. So thank you for listening. I'm looking forward to the discussion and to your feedback. Um, thank you, Hilary. That was very interesting indeed. Um, 